0: Well, thank you all for coming, and uh, I uh, appreciate your interest, or at least feigned interest, in <laughs> markets and uh, medical care, which has taken on a new dimension in the last few months. People are very interested in, in how markets can work. Uh, many people think they don't work in, in when it comes to medical care, and of course, this is something that Uh, I've had an interest in for some time. Um, I had an article that I wrote with a student, or maybe this student wrote the article with me. She did a lot of the work a number of years ago on third-party payers in medical care, uh, and that article is available in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, I was very pleased a few years ago to have that article uh, cited in the New York Times um, favorably. Uh, which I don't know if that reflects on the quality of the article or not, but uh, but I, I have in the past in this, in this lecture um, discussed third-party payers to some extent. This year uh, at Mises U, I'm going to do some things that are a little different um, because we need to address some things related to the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic. And um, so let's start off with just a, a few clarifications of of terms here because we're going to talk a little bit about government's role in medical care and there's some there's some confusion on this sometimes about what we mean when we say universal medical care socialized medicine things like that we toss these terms around quite frequently without being very careful Uh, socialized medicine is where government actually operates the hospitals and medical staff or government employees If you think about the VA system, if you think about the National Health Service in in the UK uh, or the Spanish system, these are kind of good examples of government actually operating the medical facilities, hiring the the doctors and nurses and other staff. Uh, Universal coverage means that everyone's got medical insurance. Typically, that would be provided by the government. Uh, Hospitals and medical staff might be private, uh, privately owned and operated, um, the Canadian system might be a better example of something that's close to universal coverage, although even there you can find some people in Canada that are not uh, covered. Um, uh, can universal coverage exist in a fully voluntary society? Think about whether maybe if you have a neighborhood, uh, think of that as maybe not just a small subdivision in a, a suburban community, but Maybe it's some larger grouping where people, um, if they buy into this neighborhood, they are buying in with a package of services, which could include uh, medical insurance. There's no particular reason why that couldn't happen. I live in a typical suburban neighborhood. It's got uh, various services and facilities that it provides. There's a swimming pool and a tennis court and a little clubhouse if you want to have an event and some landscaping that is paid for with the dues that are paid annually by everyone who lives in that neighborhood. Um, You could could do something like that in a voluntary society as well. So I don't think we need to look at universal medical care as necessarily being something that involves government, although certainly that's the association we have with that term today. A single-payer system may be found with universal coverage, but universal doesn't need to be single-payer. So universal could be a blend of uh, private insurance for people who have employer-provided health insurance, or you might have some people who have government-paid medical insurance. So uh, single-payer and universal coverage and socialized medicine are not interchangeable terms. So that's something to to think about. Of course, in the last few months, uh, we've been very interested in what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's had a A lot of implications, economic and and, and medical. Um, But I want to offer a word of caution here as we think about some of these issues. One is uh, that as an economist, I'm not an epidemiologist. An epidemiologist is not an economist. And sometimes we think that because we've got expertise in one area, it qualifies us to speak authoritatively in some other area. And we need to be very careful about that. We can quickly get ourselves into some trouble. I saw this morning that um, Alyssa Milano has suggested that we need to have a national lockdown and UBI, universal basic income, and we need to have uh, printing of money, um, she says, because of the co- uh, coronavirus uh, epidemic. Now. Um, She's an actress. Uh, I, maybe I, I will stop speaking about how to act in my economics classes if uh, act, actresses and actors will agree to stop um, trying to be authoritative on, on issues of economics and, and, and medical care. Of course, they've got a platform, and what they say has a lot of. Uh, impact because of who they are, and people listen to Alyssa Milano a lot more than they listen to me, um, I'm not suggesting that I'm an expert at all on on epidemiology or biology or other things, but it's, it's important for us to keep in mind, you know, stay in your lane. It uh, doesn't mean that I can't have an opinion on some of these things, but I much prefer to quote someone else who's got some uh, traction, who, who's thought about this more. F.A. Hayek said the hopes they place in planning are the result not of a comprehensive view of society but rather of a very limited view and often the result of a great exaggeration of the importance of the ends they place foremost. It would make the very men who are most anxious to plan society the most dangerous if they were allowed to do so and the most intolerant of the planning of others. There could hardly be a more unbearable and much more irrational world than one in which the most eminent specialists in each field were allowed to proceed unchecked with the realization of their ideals. And in a similar vein, Murray Rothbard wrote, it is no crime to be ignorant of economics, which is, after all, a specialized discipline and one that most people consider to be a dismal science. But it is totally irresponsible to have a loud and vociferous opinion on economic subjects while remaining in that state of ignorance. Uh, Gary Gallus has a a great article, I've got the link here, uh, on why central planning by medical experts will lead to disaster. But again, I would argue those who are trained in economics, those who are trained in related uh, praxeological fields need to be careful before we start trying to speak on, say, the effectiveness of hydrochloroquine or remdesivir or masks or a lot of other things. Now, we have some statistical tools that we, we learn about. We can sometimes apply that toolbox to things that relate to human action. And the response of an individual or a population to a medical intervention does depend to some extent on that human action. Um, so, so it's not that economists can't have a word to say, but we need to be very careful about this. All right, so I've got a list here of some approaches that we might suggest as economists to situations like the one that we're in right now, cases where there are um, uh, pandemics or maybe more localized health problems. And really you could apply some of this to other kinds of crises as well. So the first one I'll suggest is to allow price gouging. Now, price gouging is a term that's very loosely applied to um, increases in prices that we don't like. Um, I I have students that frequently in writing a paper or response to an essay question will say something about how we need to stop price gouging. This is a role for government to stop price gouging. They think, oh, Dr. Tara will like this Uh, because of course, who could be in favor of price gouging? What a horrible thing! Price gouging, um, and uh, so I, I'd suggest that actually increases in prices when there's a crisis can be a very good thing. Uh, one, it keeps if, if you if you try to impose a limit on prices with a price ceiling, or um, in this case, we're talking about price ceilings, but other kinds of interventions like price floors would have other negative effects. But if you keep a price below the equilibrium price, then you're going to tend to create a shortage, and that reduces the incentives for people to come up with innovative solutions to various problems, what kinds of therapies might be helpful in dealing with a pandemic. Low prices mean that those who could make do with less won't, so goods run out for those with great need. Now, um, my household, we usually keep a, we have a full pantry most of the time. Uh, we run out of ketchup. We don't have to run to the store to buy more ketchup right away because there's another full bottle in the pantry. And we tended to do the same thing with a lot of things, cleaning supplies, toilet paper, and a number of other uh, items that are normal household use. Now, does that mean that when I went to the store and I saw, after this uh, coronavirus pandemic broke out in the United States, and I saw a package of toilet paper on the shelf, that I would refrain from buying it because I knew that I had already a package at home that would probably last me for another couple of weeks? No, if I see it and the price is low, then I might take it anyway. Um, And so many people would would behave in this way and think, well, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get this again, and uh, I've got got another package at home, but I'm going to go ahead and take this while I know I can get it. People will do this. Now, if the price goes up, then people who already have some at home don't have as urgent a need necessarily, and they will say, well, I'll... I'll wait. I, I'm okay for now. Price controls discourage people from making those kinds of decisions to, to forego buying an extra package when they already have some. Uh, third, the expectation that prices will be capped by government discourages stockpiling for emergencies. So if you have a retail store and you some part of what you sell to the public might be something that is scarce, when there's a disaster. I live in South Carolina. We get run over by hurricanes every so often, and the building supply stores, the Lowe's, the Home Depot, and so forth, they keep things like chainsaws and generators and plywood and other things that people would like to have after a hurricane strikes the area. Now, uh, typically after a hurricane, we'll see price controls put into place, and stores like Lowe's or Home Depot are told you can't Increase your price substantially over what you would normally charge for these kinds of items. So, what incentive does Lowe's or Home Depot have to stash a warehouse full of things that might be particularly useful after a natural disaster, and in the knowledge that they could then charge a 20 or 30 or 50 percent, 100 percent premium on those things after the disaster? Well, they don't have much of an incentive if the government controls prices, and if it's well known that this is to be expected after a natural disaster. So why would people stockpile hand sanitizer, masks, or ventilators, or any other thing if they don't believe that they'll be able to charge a price that is higher when the need is higher? Uh, Furthermore, if you have a policy of allowing prices to rise to market levels, that that doesn't mean that you can't have charity. Uh, uh, just because I'm in favor of markets doesn't mean that I'm against uh, uh, transactions or gifts that might take place without a uh, price being charged, and we sometimes forget that. Um, I, I like markets. I think they work pretty well. I think they have a lot of benefits, but um, you know, I give things away, too, without expecting things in return. You've seen, if you've taken a basic microeconomics class, this diagram, supply and demand, and you see the equilibrium price there on the vertical axis, the price axis, and um, what happens when there is a crisis, when there is an epidemic that, that produces increased demand for certain services, doctor services, nurses services, and other hospital workers and first responders. What happens when the... Uh, demand for a particular kind of medication goes through the roof. What happens when ventilator demand goes up? What happens when the at the same time, the difficulty of getting some of these things may may um, may increase? So it may become may become more difficult to manufacture some of these things for some of the same some of the same reasons. If you have a an epidemic and maybe this is this has um, infected some people who work in the hospital the supply of doctors and nurses and other workers may go down as well. So we get something like this, where we see the supply curve shifting to the left, we see the demand curve shifting to the right, the equilibrium price goes up, maybe goes up a lot. But if we have a policy that says, no, 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 you can't raise your prices, you gotta keep the price at the same level that it was before, then you're imposing a price ceiling at the old price, which is no longer relevant here, and we get a shortage. We get a huge increase in the quantity demanded, a decrease in the quantity supplied. And people who want to need this product or service very desperately may be unable to get it at all at any price. A second suggestion for dealing with a pandemic from a market perspective is to eliminate occupational licensure. And um, occupational licensure is the practice that applies not only to medical occupations, but many others where the government says, if you want to engage in this, providing the service to the public, then you have to pass a test, maybe you have to take a certain number of hours of of education. Um, uh, If you were um, getting an occupational license um, in the 1950s or 60s, you might find that You had to declare yourself not a communist if you wanted to be a veterinarian or something. So there's all kinds of requirements that may not be particularly relevant to your competency. Um, We think of these things, unfortunately, as being kind of protective of the public. But what happens instead with occupational licensure is that it it tends to limit competition. It tends to ossify the status quo. We pretend that this is about protecting patients. But what what are we protecting patients from? Other practitioners that might have a different idea about how to practice medicine. Um, we, we, uh, We say this is about protecting patients, but this may be more about protecting the mainstream and protecting those who are already in that profession against those who have other ideas. Under pandemic conditions, those who are skilled, but maybe they let their licensure lapse. Maybe they decided to retire um, they retired maybe very recently, so their skills are still still fairly current, could be very useful, but they can't get back into providing that service. Uh, skilled people who are able to perform a function that is legally restricted to another group can't cross over to alleviate a labor shortage in that other group. There may be things that nurses do that, uh, or can do, that are limited to doctors, and in a crisis, of course you'd... Prefer to have someone with more expertise in a certain area, but in a crisis, maybe it makes sense to have a person outside, legally outside that that the, the scope of that license, to be able to step in and provide that service. Maybe they're only 80% as effective, but 80% effectiveness is better than nothing at all. Uh, not quite finished students. Maybe you're just you know going to graduate medical school next week or something. You're you're. Uh, capable of doing a lot, but without a license, you're prohibited from engaging in that activity. I- I'd like to say a couple of words about licensure, um, more more generally. But um, I- I'll note here that even the OECD has stated that this might be a good idea. Uh, they say crisis situations like the coronavirus epidemic can provide opportunities to change the traditional roles of different healthcare providers and expand the roles of some providers like nurses and pharmacists so that they can take on some of the tasks from doctors and allow the doctors to spend their time more effectively in more complex cases. An older article that appeared in the Journal of Libertarian Studies, which by the way, we just resurrected last year. We are, um, we, we've got a, a great series of articles coming out in the next couple of issues. Um, very healthy pipeline for that journal. And, and if you've um, got a paper that you'd like to, to have us consider, I'd welcome a submission to the, to the Journal of Libertarian Studies. But Ronald Hamowy way back Uh, in the 70s, wrote an article on the history of licensure, which I think is still very interesting and relevant for us today. And he said that, in fact, uh, the the, uh, the 19th century situation where people could practice medicine without having a license produced some important advances in medical uh, treatment. So he says anybody who was unlicensed and had the inclination to set himself up as a physician could do so. The market alone determined who would prove successful in the field and who not. Competition, oh, sorry, uh, medical schools abounded, the great bulk of which were privately owned and operated, and the prospective student could gain admission to even the best of them without great difficulty. With free entry into the profession possible and education in medical Medicine cheap and readily available. Large numbers of men entered practice. Competition resulted not only in a proliferation of medical personnel, but in the growth of heterodox theories arising in opposition to standard medical therapeutics. Now, that's a great thing if you know anything about what medical therapy was like in the early 1800s. They were bleeding people because they thought that would help people uh, get better. Uh, He mentions bloodletting. Arsenic, which is a poison. <laughs> uh, actually, many medicines we have today are poisons. Anything is poisonous in sufficiently large doses. But arsenic is probably not a good idea for <laughs> medical treatment, and yet this is what people were doing, and so uh, this was the mainstream. And so, an alternative school of thought emerged, called eclectic. Ec- can't speak eclecticism, which said. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we should try something different. Now, if we had medical licensure at the time, you can imagine the mainstream says, well, these quacks that don't want to bleed people and don't want to administer arsenic, I mean, why do we want this? I mean, we want to, you know, we're going to lose our jobs and people are going to lose their lives because people aren't taking arsenic. (laughs) So medical licensure, as I said before, ossified Practice or would have ossified the practice had it existed at that, at that time. In the late 1800s, the U.S. had the highest number of physicians per capita in the world. Some of these were probably not very good physicians. Others were probably great. But the market test of whether you were effective tended to weed out people who were not helping their patients. In 1904, the American Medical Association began a concerted effort to reduce the number of medical students claiming this would increase medical quality. It's all for the patient, you see. Not about protecting us from competition, not about limiting the number of doctors so that our fees can rise. This is about protecting the patient. That's what they would argue. So in 1910, Abraham Flexner published a report for the Carnegie Foundation on U.S. and Canadian medical education, which suggested the closure of most medical schools, homogenization of education in the remaining medical schools, approval of any new medical school by the state government, and additional state licensure regulation, which created a number of bottlenecks that exist to this day for getting into the medical fields. You want to be a doctor? You've got to go to a particular medical school that has been approved by the state, Otherwise, they won't license you, which means you can't practice medicine. So the AMA controls medical schools state by state through an accreditation body called the Liaison Committee on Medical Education. Licenses are only granted to graduates of those schools. So as you might expect, with a shift of the supply curve to the left, you saw fees increasing for doctors and others. Schools of alternative medicine were almost all closed, and those changes to the medical schools resulted in fewer women and fewer African Americans in medical education. This uh, situation has had a radical impact on the American medical profession, and it is a pattern that has been copied in many many other countries. So if you want medical care and all of a sudden there's a pandemic and there's a huge increase in demand, licensure prevents a rapid adjustment of the number of doctors and nurses and other care providers to that new situation. Third suggestion is that we dismantle FDA barriers to innovation. The Food and Drug Administration has been around for a little over 100 years in the United States. Was a uh, product of some of the progressive era um, political moves, which uh, Patrick Newman's uh, book on the progressive era is uh, is great on this, the one he edited, um, that discusses some of these things. Um, Murray Rothbard's work on the progressive era is very enlightening, and one of the outcomes of this is this one of the first consumer product regulatory uh, agencies. And uh, the FDA essentially is in the business of creating barriers to entry. We think of it as protecting patients against bad drugs. Thalidomide, for example, which is a drug that was created for morning sickness for um, pregnant women and turned out to create um, very serious Side effects in the form of birth defects for children, and the FDA um, has has been saying ever since. You know, we see we protected you against thalidomide. If it hadn't been for us, uh, we would have seen this um, this problem much more widespread in the United States. So what the FDA is doing is it's it's reducing competition for existing treatments. Once you are past all the hurdles that the FDA has created for getting a new drug onto the market, then the FDA is now protecting you against competition. Uh, There are enormous costs and delays. The delays are not as bad as they once were. It used to be eight to ten years to get FDA approval. Now that has been substantially shortened, but there are still enormous costs. Hundreds of millions and even topping a billion dollars to get a drug to the market. And a lot of this cost has to do with FDA requirements. Now, I I have students frequently tell me, well, if we didn't have the FDA, then no no new drugs would be tested and we would all be susceptible to uh, the latest rat poison or whatever it is that people decide to bottle up and sell. It's not as though there would be no testing. Uh, Drug companies tend to not want to get a reputation of administering or or selling things that kill people. That that damages their stock value, even if they didn't have any other moral compunction about it. They they do care about their stock value, certainly, and and they would not want to see um, that damaged. I mean, what happened to, you know, pick your latest um, botulism case at some fast food restaurant. What happens to their stock price when they have a handful of cases of botulism? I think this happened to Chipotle a while back and Taco Bell a while back. And what happens? Of course, their their stock value drops, and and it's not the State Department of Health or whoever examines uh, restaurants that's really guaranteeing your safety. They may have a certificate on the wall with a letter on it that gives you a grade, but how many of you look at that grade before you make your order? So what's happening, and a lot of times, by the way, what they're grading is not – that relevant to the uh, quality of the product. What's foremost in the minds of people who own restaurants is I want to keep my customers coming back, which means I need to not make them sick. So costs can, can discourage new drugs. We call that drug loss, which can cost lives. Drugs that might have been able to save somebody, but we don't have them in the market because the FDA created such high barriers to entry. Uh, Drug lag is another problem where we can lose lives because people are waiting for approval. And that period of time has been extended beyond what might be optimal for admitting new drugs onto the market. Uh, One example of this is Ceptra. This was uh, an antibiotic. There was a five-year delay imposed by the FDA in getting this onto the US market. And an estimate by a Nobel laureate, George Hitchings, uh, was that this delay cost 80,000 lives in the United States. Uh, Beta blockers, there was a lag in the FDA approval there that may have cost 250,000 lives in the United States. Um, We get drug suppression. Mary Ruart has argued that at least half of pharmaceutical innovations get shelved because the cost to take a drug through the regulatory testing process makes those drugs uneconomic for drug developers to pursue. It doesn't make any sense if you're going to have to spend a few extra hundreds of uh, millions of dollars to get a new drug onto the market. Uh, Even with very conservative assumptions, Ruart found the years of life lost due to the FDA clinical demands numbered in the millions. Diego Morris was diagnosed at age 11 with a rare bone cancer. There was a drug, mefetamide, which had been developed and was available in Europe, but the FDA required an exceedingly expensive clinical trial, which required a large enough number of patients that, given the rarity of the disease, was very difficult to, to uh, arrange. And so Diego's parents could not obtain this drug in the United States. So they moved to London to get treatment where their bureaucracy had allowed the drug onto the market. And he ended up becoming a, a spokesman for the right to try legislation, which was signed into law in 2018. This is at least a step in the right direction. So we've seen some, some progress. Uh, You can't even advertise an already approved drug for a new use without getting the FDA approval for that new use. Some companies won't find it worthwhile to revisit the approval process to get that new use approved. And so people may not know about that new uh, use. Tom DiLorenzo has mentioned that that this may have been a problem with aspirin. that uh, aspirin can be useful in preventing uh, uh, heart attacks. Apparently, um, not a doctor. Not suggesting that, but that's that's what I'm told. So, if you if you make aspirin and you can't advertise that uh, that aspirin is useful for this new purpose, then if, if that's correct and this, this this could actually prevent heart attacks, how many more heart attacks do we have because they were not allowed? To speak about that in their advertising. Uh, also, folic acid uh, was was another case of this. Um, very useful apparently in preventing birth defects, and yet folic acid manufacturers were not permitted uh, early on to advertise their product as being helpful in this. Back to COVID nineteen. Uh, I'm not going to get into the whole question of hydrochloroquinine or remdesivir or other therapies or preventive treatment, uh, preventive um, approaches to, to COVID-19, uh, but it, it does appear that even here with a lot of political capital being expended to, to, to uh, try to, to address this, this pandemic quickly, we still have the FDA standing in the way. So Charles Silver and David Hyman in, a, in an article from April of this year said, scientists are now studying whether remdesivir might be effective in fighting SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Remdesivir was developed six years ago to combat various viruses, including dengue fever, the West Nile virus, Zika, MERS, SARS, and Ebola. But it was never approved for use, apparently because Gilead Sciences, the patent holder, maybe we'll talk about patents in a minute, saw too little financial gain to warrant the cost of the FDA's approval process. The result is that we are effectively starting from scratch in the search for COVID-19 treatment. The federal government also botched the process for creating and administering coronavirus tests. Because SARS-CoV-2 is a new variant, a new test was needed to track its spread, German researchers had developed one in mid-January, but the CDC decided that's the Centers for Disease Control decided not to use it, instead pressing ahead with the development of a separate test. When that test was released in late January, it proved faulty, and the FDA prevented private laboratories from developing tests of their own. The CDC also distributed its few test kits equally to labs across the country without regard to size of local populations, resulting in a dramatic shortage of valid tests in populous areas, which created the false impression that the number of cases in the U.S. was low. In early March, facilities in the U.S. had administered 3,099 tests. By comparison, South Korea, a much smaller country whose epidemic had started the same day as ours, had had administered 188,000. Now, um, I don't have time in this short talk to cover some of the issues related to uh, the kind of the externality and public goods arguments for dealing with pandemics. And the arguments are essentially that if you get, if you, if you take steps to prevent yourself from getting a disease, you're also conferring a benefit on other people because you're making it harder for them to also get the disease. They, if you can't get, if you don't get it, then they can't get it from you at least. And so you'll hear this kind of argument, kind of argument that that people may be taking too few steps to prevent a disease because they don't directly get any benefit from a stranger not getting the disease. So uh, this is beyond the nine minutes I've got left here, but I will point you to an article, very recent article, in fact it's still uh, forthcoming, but you can find this on SSRN, a paper by Byron Carson at Hampton, Sydney, uh, privately preventing malaria in the United States, 1900 to 1925. Malaria is a disease that we hardly ever see in the United States anymore, but it used to be very common, especially in the Southeast. And um, can is the private sector completely helpless when it comes to these diseases that are? Uh, what what can we what can we say about? Something that appears to many economists to be a pure public good, preventing um, diseases like malaria, where mosquitoes breed on one person's property, fly over to somebody else and transmit disease. Um, I suggest that you take a look at, at Dr. Carson's paper. Number four, though, moving along. Um, we should put patients, not government, in charge of patient care. And I have written on, on third-party payers, and um, I can send you a link to that later if, if you like, but third-party payers, whether that's government or insurance companies, tend to create a moral hazard problem, uh, which leads to regulation and and rationing. What about universal medical care? We've seen this trotted out again as another uh, supposed uh, cure for um, pandemics. That if we had universal medical care, then we would uh, we see people getting earlier treatment and early, earlier diagnosis, earlier testing, and and all of this. This is no real solution. For one thing, if we have nationalized uh, health care uh, where everybody is maybe not nationalized, maybe just universal medical care, I'm switching my own terms around a little bit, but uh, if we have a a system by which people don't pay the marginal cost of their own medical care, that's going to increase the quantity of medical care that people tend to want, which means that we're going to have to have some means of rationing that medical care. There are not enough tests to go around then the test may end up going to people who are simply more anxious about their situation, not necessarily people who are more exposed, not necessarily people who have a a greater chance of actually having the disease we're testing for. Furthermore, government does not do a particularly good job of containing costs. So the argument that having government involvement lowers costs efficiently that people have more access to medical care and can get earlier treatment and diagnosis and so forth, If you look at where markets are dominant for medical services, such as cosmetic services, which government won't pay for generally, uh, cost increases in that sector have been substantially lower over time than medical care in general, which has increased at rapid rates relative to general price increases. I mentioned the term moral hazard a minute ago. So moral hazard is that risk or hazard that an insured person is going to engage in activities that are undesirable or immoral from the insurer's point of view because they make it more likely that the claims will be larger. So if I have a a car that's insured against, let's say, hail damage or or something, then if there's a storm that comes along, I may not... um, pull the car into the garage, or I may not be as, as eager to do that because I know that if it is damaged, then somebody else is going to pay for it. So maybe this is relevant as well to medical care. If I'm covered by medical insurance, maybe I don't take all the steps that I would otherwise take to seek out early, early diagnosis or treatment because somebody else is going to pay the bill if I get sick enough to wind up in um, ne- needing much more expensive care. Um, I'm going to have to skip over some of this here on costs for the sake of time. But uh, moving along here with universal medical care, I think it's, it's important for us to think about um, these arguments because you're going to see more and more of them. The OECD, whom I quoted earlier is actually getting something right, on uh, occupational licensure, I think gets this wrong. Uh, In the same article, they say that the COVID-19 crisis demonstrates the importance of universal health coverage as a key element for the resilience of health systems. High levels of -of out-of-pocket payments may deter people from treating early or, or seeking earlier diagnosis and treatment, et cetera. So let's think about this. Don't insurance companies want to avoid really high medical expenses that might occur if the person doesn't get treated early? I mean, insurance companies, it seems, would have an incentive. And in fact, we see that even before ACA Affordable Care Act mandates, private insurance, some of of the policies at least, offered first dollar coverage for preventive care services. Why? Well, I mean, they, they don't want you to get expensively sick. They'd rather catch things early. Will untested people take no steps to avoid contracting a disease or be uninterested in getting tested and treated earlier so that they can avoid their own out-of-pocket costs of of treatment of a full-blown disease? Uh, Will a bureaucratized system result in gaming the system, such as classifying patients according to the most lucrative diagnosis rather than what is most accurate? In um, Japan, one just almost trivial example of this kind of thing, um, in Japan, if you want a vaccination, at least a while back, you, the, the government specified what the price was going to be for a vaccination. Well, that's, that's what the doctor could charge per visit. It's a per visit cost. So what do doctors do? Well, okay, hmm, patient needs a vaccination. That's one visit. But what if I made it two visits? What if I split the vaccination up into two two separate visits? I could charge twice as much. So that's what they did. Now how do we know that that there's not going to be that kind of gaming of the system? Um, I will very briefly go with this uh, last diagram, and then we'll stop. But uh, this is a this is not a supply and demand diagram precisely. This is a a marginal benefit, marginal cost diagram. And you have marginal private cost, that's the upward sloping curve, marginal private cost of getting preventive care. That's the cost to you of getting preventive care, whether that's seeking out a test or taking steps to avoid transmission or something. And the downward sloping curve there is the marginal private benefit. That's the benefit to you of getting preventive care. What happens if there's an extra benefit? When you get preventive care, you're helping somebody else who's not going to get the disease from you. So we get an additional benefit. We stack on the private benefit. We call that maybe the marginal social benefit. That's an external benefit. It, it doesn't accrue to you. It accrues to somebody else. And this creates, as, as traditional microeconomics would, would call this, a dead weight loss. And that's that gray triangle where there are gains that are not being realized because the cost of the private individual is higher than the benefit of the private individual. So then what about government stepping in here and subsidizing the preventive care or providing the preventive care? That's kind of the, the policy suggestion that a lot of people would come into from, from looking at this. So what happens if the government subsidizes but they oversubsidize? we could call this overshoot. They're subsidizing more care than is ideal, which is certainly possible. In that case, if they've overestimated the external benefit and they oversubsidize as a result, we get a loss, that right gray triangle, that is larger than the, uh, the loss that the market on its own would have produced. So one of the cautions here is don't make government into some kind of uh, cure-all for this that's not going to create any problems of its own. So it's too many times we look at cases of, of like this and we say, well, you know, the market has failed, market failure, therefore we need government to come in and fix it. There's government failure too. Government failure can be worse and can be worse by far. It's subject to many other uh, problems not constrained by the search for profits, et cetera. So we could add, I mean, we, we, maybe, maybe we get rid of this deadweight loss on the left, but we add a deadweight loss that's even worse if the government gets this wrong. And there's no way to measure this marginal social benefit. Value is subjective. We know this as Austrian economists. Va- value is subjective. We don't know where, what that marginal social benefit is. We don't the government has no information that is available to it to be able to subsidize correctly. Um, Not to mention the property rights violations that that incur that that occur here. Uh, Also, we get costs added uh, here from waste, from political lobbying. People who provide preventive care want to sell more of their product, they're going to seek through lobbying more. Uh, more government subsidies. I'll close with this. Even if we could find the efficient quantity of preventive care, how can this trump property rights? If you force a person to fund the care of a stranger or buy a product like insurance or engage in preventive care, you're violating fundamental property rights. This is a separate separate argument, but one I think should be given voice. So thank you very much.